Hey folks, Scott Weingart here, and this is the MCrit Podcast. Today on the podcast, we're going to discuss, again, sleep. We already did a discussion on the sleep of shift workers with my buddies from Wild Health, and that was out, I don't know, I think a few months ago, and I promised a follow-up episode that would be less dealing with shift work and sleep in general. Now, why are we talking about sleep on a podcast about resuscitation and acute critical care? Well, the reason is for all of the people that practice in that, we have the potential for sleep disruption, and we have the uh, real necessity because of the incredible cognitive load of our jobs to maximize our sleep. Now, that's not to say other specialties in medicine or other professions in general wouldn't benefit from having amazing sleep, but we really need it in the uh, high-stress, high-cognitive necessity professions that listen to the MCRIT podcast. And I've been kind of obsessed with sleep for most of my adult life, Um, partially because I am one of the short-sleeping genetic people out there. Uh, I, on the times in my life where I've been getting the best sleep ever, uh, I've gotten maximum of six hours a night, not because I, I, you know, like I said, it's not, that's when I've been at my best. and uh, I thrive on that. If I could get six hours, I am like, you know, remarkable. Most of the time, um, it's, it's between four to six hours. And I function uh, really well on anything in that range. Now, uh, but that does mean that if anything gets messed up and you tick below that four-hour mark, uh, things go really, really badly. I think far more so than someone who generally would benefit from eight and who gets seven. Um, because, you know, you just don't have time to cram in all of the sleep stages necessary to really make for restorative sleep if you only have four hours to work with and you wind up getting three hours and 15 minutes. So I've always been obsessed with sleep. That obsession has moved to a study of all of the extent literature I could get my hands on, all of the um, books and you know, talking to sleep researchers, talking to sleep cognitive therapists, um, talking to sleep, you know, palm crit doctors with a specialty in sleep. So I'm really obsessed about that. But All that being said, uh, I will put out the proviso, I am not a sleep expert. So I'm going to give you my distillation of all of that information I've taken in. But I am not a, uh, you know, high-level practitioner on sleep that you'd actually want to go to if you have problems. uh, Or uh, if you really want to go deeper into any of this, you need to find a sleep professional, whether they be in the uh, psychology realm, the sleep scientist realm, or uh, the sleep doctor realm, you know, the the classically trained palm crit sleep type doctors. So I, I will put that out there. And so if I say something you think is wrong, then question me and I'll tell you what my sources of information are. And then you could decide whether that's good enough to, uh, read on your own, or if you want to vet the knowledge with a higher level brain than I have at sleep. So all of that said, like there's some things I think I am uh, expert at, and this is not one of them. I I think I am a very skilled uh, armchair sleep (laughs) uh, speaker at this point. Uh, So uh, I am just giving you the benefit of everything that I have taken into my own sleep practices uh, through having read everything available to someone at my level. Uh, But I am not going to pretend to be a expert in sleep. Um, Now, there's plenty of experts out there who I think are fantastic to listen to. Like Matt Walker uh, is, you know, my uh, avatar of all things sleep research. I think he is brilliant. Um, 
And so if you wanted to go to someone's work, you know, you could hear a bunch of his lectures on uh, YouTube or read his book. Uh, I, I think you'd do very well indeed. But um, what I do on Amcrit, as you know, is I try to distill the best extent knowledge out there into my own clinical practice. So now I'm giving you my own uh, sleep practice as that distillation. All right. So with all that being said, let's get into it. Very briefly, how sleep works. There's three major systems. There's a lot of minor systems. The major systems, and you probably remember these. This will just be a cueing mechanism to reactivate that knowledge you might have gained during med school or at other points in your life. But, you know, you have your circadian rhythm, which um, you have your super chiasmatic nucleus, uh, your master clock for your brain uh, that at some point signals the pineal gland to uh, release melatonin, and melatonin's kind of like the uh, the gun at the start of the sleep race is how it's been phrased by other sleep researchers. Um, and so that system is interacting with your sleep drive uh, or your sleep push, and that's an adenosine-based system, and that adenosine builds up in the course of the day, and when it gets high enough, then you're just exhausted. And then the last system is your... Uh, sympathetic, parasympathetic system, and it's the parasympathetic system that allows you to sleep, and the sympathetic system that wakes you up, and uh, the mediator that's primarily involved in that is cortisol. So uh, when stress levels are high, sleep will be difficult to get, unless the exhaustion is so pronounced that it overcomes that, and when you're in a parasympathetic mode, then you're more able to sleep. So sympathetic wakes you up, parasympathetic puts you down. So uh, I could go, I could just talk about that stuff alone for 30 minutes, but let's just leave it there because uh, that's, I think, just enough knowledge to allow you to um, process a lot of the other things we're going to speak about. All right. So I, I figured I'd speak about this chronologically. Um, so why don't we talk about with pre-sleep or the wind down uh, type stuff? So the things before you actually wind up falling asleep. So in general, you want to start moving your environment more and more towards a sleep-inducing uh, setup as the night progresses. And so that brings you to lighting, which I'll mention first up. Now, a lot of times you'll see people um, in these bright white, which really means blue lights, um, you know, TV blaring in their face. They're looking at their uh, screen on their phones, and all of that predisposes to bad sleep. What you want is to kind of mimic the environment on the savanna in which it, you know, it's bright light and noon with a blue cast, and then it gets more and more towards the yellow spectrum. Um, and the lights kind of change from uh, high up overhead at noon to gradually moving towards the horizon and dimming and dimming and dimming. And then by the time, you know, the sun goes down very soon after that, uh, you might have some firelight, uh, and, uh, coming down from below, you know, the, and that, that, you know, is very comforting and the light above is gone and you have this, you know, very diffuse yellow based light. And all of a sudden you start being prone to sleep. Well, you kind of want to duplicate that in our inside environments. You kind of, you know, if you have the kind of lighting setup that decorators advocate, where you have multiple sources of light in different um, degrees of luminance and uh, intensity and, and location, then you could move from these overhead bright white lights that you might want in a kitchen when cooking to um, lights that are dimmed and diffuse and more on the yellow spectrum. Um, that 
will duplicate that same situation of the sun going down, a fire uh, on the ground crackling away. Uh, you don't want bright overhead blue-based lights uh, it, as the night progresses. And you, you want to move towards these more dimmed lighting sources. So if you don't have dimmers on, you, a lamp in your environment, consider getting that. It puts some warmer light bulbs. Or, you know, what I have in basically all the areas I might be at night is I have uh, U light bulbs. And I take money from none of the companies I'm going to mention in the course of this. But U by Philips um, actually allows a light source to change from bright blue, you know, very intense white looking light to uh, dimmer yellow orange looking lights as the evening progresses. And you could actually have presets so that at nighttime, all of my lights are um, that, you know, old timey looking yellow color. Uh, and that can very much contribute to your sleepiness. And by the time, you know, you're reading maybe before bed, you just want this very, you know, dim, not harsh, not of intensity light, and that's going to predispose to sleep. Um, so that's one thing you could adjust in your environment in the pre-sleep period. Let's also talk about anxiety. Um, you do not sleep well when you're anxious. You might have trouble falling asleep. You're going to have trouble staying asleep. So you really want to optimize, just like the lights are dimming and getting more diffuse and uh, you, you want your anxieties to do the same. You want to get to the point where you don't have things that are causing sympathetic activation, where you don't have um, the possibility for you to get upregulated because the sympathetic system is the death of good sleep. So you really want a calming environment. Now, you know, for some people, they could watch a, a horror movie right before bed, they're going to be fine. But for others, you know, where that leads to uh, trepidation, that's not going to be a good thing. You know, do things that are going to be soothing, that are going to take you to this point of more and more parasympathetic tone. And so, uh, and we'll get to this in a second, but that means probably not doom scrolling through Twitter at night, uh, probably not checking your email from work at night, because all of this is giving the potential for sympathetic activation. All right, exercise is interesting because uh, it, we used to be told that you shouldn't do any heavy exercise at night. It's going to affect your sleep. Uh, I have one study in the show notes saying it's probably okay. Like, I don't think you should do super draining things, um, you know, things that leave you completely wasted and uh, and hungry and and uh, totally wiped out. I think that's going to be net deleterious. But light exercise is probably okay, uh, even up until you know close to your bedtime. It used to be said we should try to stay away from like about four hours from the time you want to fall asleep from any exercise, um, unless you wanted to actually shift your circadian. Uh, it's actually one of the um, things that could be used to change your uh, body clock is heavy exercise right before bed. Heavy exercise right before bed will push back your um, circadian clock. But light exercise is probably okay, even uh, you know up until the hours right before bed. What I found to be super helpful, um, and uh, as I'm getting older, uh, more and more necessary, is I like to do some light mobility work uh, in my pre-sleep routine. Uh, just some stretches, like super light stretches. I actually do it while watching TV uh, or listening to a podcast. But um, you know, stretching out hips and back and stuff like that with light mobility exercising uh, has led to better sleep on my part. And uh, I've noticed that as I started getting older, uh, that I actually get you know super sore when I wake up in the morning. 
um, you know, my hips hurt, my back hurts, um, until, you know, I've, I've worked it out over like 20 minutes of like walking around, it disappears. But if I do the mobility work before bed and then lie in bed for however many hours, I don't wake up feeling as horrible. So I, I really love now having added mobility work, which is just, you know, stretching, some active and passive stretching. Um, I think it's very helpful. Now I've spoken on MCRIT, you know, so many times about meditation and its benefits, and that's obviously a parasympathetic uh, nidus. So meditation can be super helpful before bed. For some people, if they're really tired and they try to meditate, it just, you know, they wind up falling asleep. So then that's not ideal. Maybe meditate a little bit earlier in the day. But for me, um, I actually like to do my meditations at nighttime, you know, in during this pre-sleep period, and it doesn't actually make me fall asleep. All right, I'll just put this out there uh, because it has to be said and I won't dwell on it because this is a family show, uh, but orgasm is a remarkable way of getting uh, high, high levels of parasympathetic tone that could counter sympathetic tone. So however you wanna get there, that's up to you, uh, but that could be incredibly helpful uh, for your sleep. And I'm not saying you have to make it a regular part of your sleep routine, but if you did, it actually would probably be very beneficial to your sleep. All right, let's talk about temperature in this pre-sleep routine. So. You know, we could talk about it more globally as well and then narrow into the pre-sleep. So basically, uh, sleep is remarkably linked to temperature of your body. Uh, and in order to fall asleep, you need to cool down. And then to stay asleep, you need to stay cool. And then to wake up, you need to warm up. Now, some of this will be the external environment affecting your body, and some of this will be your body itself. So if you're sympathetically upregulated, you're going to get warmer, and that's gonna prevent sleep. And cooling that down without taking care of the sympathetic may actually help. Uh, taking care of the sympathetic without cooling down may actually help, and the two together will be even more potent. So all of it is an internal and external force. Your body naturally will get cool right before you fall asleep. It's probably melatonin related. And so that dip in temperature signals the onset of sleepiness. And yet by the same token, external manipulation of that could lead to sleepiness. So um, if you remember that you need to be Cool down in order to get to sleep. You need to stay cool in order to stay asleep, and then you need to warm up. And this is all from Matt Walker, I believe, if I remember my sources correctly. Um, then it tells you what you need to do externally, and it also tells you what happens naturally in a person who's in good sleep function uh, internally. Now, where it gets interesting is the steps it takes to cool down in order to go to sleep. Um, which is, you know, brings us back to the pre-sleep routine. In some ways are counterintuitive. Um, going out in the cold will actually not do it because what will happen is you'll get uh, mass vasoconstriction. And unless you stay out there long enough to actually be able to drop your core, that's net deleterious. Like if you stayed out, you know, for a couple hours, yeah, you have, will have decreased your core probably too much. You'll be shivering and then uh, potentially that's going to affect your sleep adversely. But um, the quicker way to actually cool down for sleep is actually to warm up. This is where I say it gets complex. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, if you did, uh, for instance, a sauna, and sauna has you know very uh, salutary effects on uh, health in general and for sleep. You know, the, the true benefits are difficult to parse out from just the people capable of affording and have the wherewithal to have saunas uh, are already a different group than people don't. So don't, under, don't think I don't understand that you have to take all this with a grain of salt. But sauna will cause vasodilation. You'll warm up and you'll have vasodilation. And then when you get out of the sauna, uh, what happens is you have a drop in your core because all of that warm blood is at your periphery. You go into a cold environment, you have a very big core drop. Um, you know, the opposite of going outside. So in in essence, the way to cool down to go to sleep is actually to put yourself 
in, immerse yourself in a warm environment. We mentioned sauna. The other thing that works is warm baths or, or warm showers. Now, it can't just be you know, a brief dip. It has to be long enough to get that vasodilatory activity. So probably, you know, I'm just guessing here, but probably at least 10 minutes, um, maybe even longer to get the benefits. And same thing with sauna. Um, and what you're going to have is, again, that vasodilation and then you will have, uh, when you go out into the cold environment, whether it's you know outside the tub or leaving the sauna, you get this drop in core temp. Now, you could also duplicate this um, by being in a cold room with warm socks uh, or a, a, a water bottle on your feet or hands. And we know this from the uh, induced hypothermia work um, and our, our clinical practice for this as well, that if you do countercurrent warming, if we warm the hands and feet, pe people stop shivering because so much of the sensors for... Um, whether you're actually warm or not, doesn't come from your entire body. It comes from the hands, feet, and head. So I guess in essence, if you really want it to cool down, you could be in a really cold environment with a hat, gloves, and socks on, and you could be completely buck naked, and you would actually have an excellent drop in your core that help, would help you get to sleep. But you know, we don't have to go that far. But the point is you need to warm up to cool down to fall asleep. So it, it's kind of counterintuitive. But uh, warm baths or saunas during this pre-sleep pre routine could be very helpful. All right, now I guess I could have mentioned this uh, right next to the anxiety section, but I think you'll, uh, you'll be okay uh, with those two separated. But uh, the concept of a worry journal. Now, this is something I, I think is a, a great thing for anyone who's a ruminator who has trouble falling asleep because all the things throughout their day, that's the time they finally come to mind is right as you're trying to fall asleep, is actually give your brain the knowledge that there's a dedicated period of time for this, and then your brain may be... Uh, made more comfortable that it doesn't have to do it right before bed. I think what's happening for these ruminating type people that's keeping them from falling asleep is their brain's like, there's so much else you're sticking in. You're looking at your phone, you're looking at Twitter, you're looking at Instagram. Uh, there's no time for me to know I have your full undivided attention until right before you're wanting to go to sleep while already in bed. That's the only time I get you. Like, obviously, I'm anthropomorphizing your brain, but you understand the gist of what I'm saying. And, you know, that's the only time. You're, so your brain's worried it's not going to get heard. So it wants to bring these worries up to the fore because it's the only time you may be listening. Well, give it another time. And so worry journaling is the way to make this happen. You, you take five or 10 minutes at the end of the night during your pre-sleep routine, you take a notebook or a piece of paper and you just brain dump all of the possible anxieties or things you're worrying about and you write them all down and you give your brain some mental reassurance that you know these are important and you know uh, they're things that your brain you know, again, anthropomorphizing, wants me to take care of, uh, again, putting a homunculus there that doesn't exist, but you understand. Um, and all of a sudden your brain feels uh, safe. Okay, not only did he listen to me for five or 10 minutes, but he wrote them down. And I know the idiot's not gonna forget them when he wakes up in the morning because he wrote them down. I think you will find, I, at least I have found, um, and I think you will as well, that this actually takes away from that nighttime rumination. Because uh, for me, it doesn't happen often. But when things are bothering me, what will happen is I'll feel fine about, you know, the plan and then I'll get into bed and I'll feel so sleepy and delightful. You know, I'm just know it's going to be one of those nights where I just nod off to sleep in that, you know, blissful childhood like way that we all try to achieve every night. And then the thought pops in. And it, since I haven't given it enough time in the course of the day, um, and then, you know, I get a little sympathetic upregulation, sleep is gone for like 45 minutes. So um, giving your brain the time and making it a dedicated habit of brain, each, each night you have five minutes. If you have nothing, great, we'll just stop it after one. But these are your time, brain. Uh, tell me all the worries you want me to worry about. I'll write them down so I really show to you that they're important.
Okay, this one, you know, is another thing you could add to your uh, pre-sleep routine, not to get great sleep, but to really harness the power of sleep. But uh, Josh Waitzkin in his amazing book, Art of Learning, uh, in addition to other interviews, in fact, I think this is mentioned more in other interviews than the book, um, but he is uh, someone who's thought a ton about how to achieve mastery, how to achieve learning uh, in the best possible way. And he uh, has an exercise of harnessing your subconscious in the course of your sleep. And what he actually recommends is if you want your brain to solve a problem for you while you're sleeping, uh, then just tell it the problem right before you go to sleep and say, huh, brainstorm an idea about this or figure out what I should do about that and then see. Um, and you, what you'll find, and I found this to be true, uh, sometimes you wake up and you'll have an answer. Um, you know, your brain, you've given some subconscious uh, priming to actually do some work. Uh, you know, why waste sleep on just restorative and, and making, you know, your, your chemical hormonal balance better, uh, get, get some benefit out of it. And so this uh, putting your subconscious to work idea, I think is great. All right, folks, if you're hearing that horrible sound, it's because you are listening to the free version of the MCRIP podcast. And so you've gotten the 20 minute teaser portion of this episode, which is actually an hour and 25 minutes of information about optimizing your sleep. And if you want to hear that, unfortunately, you need to be a member of MCRIT. If you want to hear all of the content that will make you the best resuscitation and acute critical care doctor humanly possible, then you need to be a member of MCRIT. You need to go to mcrit.org slash join. That's mcrit.org slash join. Become a member. It's super cheap. You get CME. You write it off on your taxes. And all of a sudden, you're getting the cutting edge literature and ideas in critical care and emergency medicine resuscitation such that you uh, could kick ass at all things taking care of super sick patients. Not that you're not already doing that, but gosh, there's always room for improvement. And one of the best ways to get that improvement is to become an MCRIT member. All right. I will talk to you soon when we have more foam and free content coming soon to you because I'm pretty sure we're releasing a ton of foam content in 2023. But if you want all of the content, and I think you should want it if you like this content thus far, come over to mcrit.org slash join.